Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta and the volume editors of each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, Dr. Raj here. And because we have our high-yield internal medicine board review, USMLE, Comlex, I mean, you always want to be up to date. So I think it's very important that I take a step back. I look over the last couple of years. What are going to be the most high-yield questions on your board exam? What do people like to ask you on the wards? And kind of give you a compilation of what I feel will put you above and beyond the score that you want. So this is my Beyond the Pearls high-yield Q&A. So these are going to be the topics that I felt were really highly tested on for a variety of reasons. So we're going to talk about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We're going to talk about self-glucose monitoring. What are these GLP-1 receptor agonists in the role of diabetes? I mean, they have great commercials on TV. So, I mean, it's definitely going to be a good topic. I mean, you never could escape a board review without some hyponatremia. And you know what? Someone just is barking up my alley and making me talk about things I love, sepsis, mechanical ventilators. What are periodic leg movements? All I know is that they appear on your board exams. And one of the favorites that a lot of my students have been emailing me about and asking me about is something called microangiopathic hemolytic anemias. And what are some of the high yield things to talk about? And then more importantly, where does that fit under the broader topic of why do I have low platelets, which we call thrombocytopenia? So let's start. Whoa, there's a huge start button there. That's me being creative. Let's talk about this 18-year-old man uh, is evaluated as part of a pre-participation sports exam. He's attending college on a basketball scholarship. I love basketball. It's my jam. And right now, the Lakers are in the playoffs. So for history-wise, the Lakers are in the first round playing the Phoenix Suns. Um, And his medical history is unremarkable. He takes no meds. And on exam, his vital signs are within normal limits. His cardiac exam reveals a brisk carotid upstroke with a three out of six systolic crescendo, decrescendo murmur. So uh, let's stop right there. When we talk about, you know, valvular heart disease, I mean, one of the buzzwords is describing the murmur on the board. And that's important in this vignette. When we talk about the classic left-sided murmurs, what valve disease can give you a systolic? Well, it's going to be aortic stenosis. Remember, that's a classic one because if it's aortic regurgitation, that's more of a diastolic uh, murmur, right? It's going to be that diastolic rumble. And does anyone remember what's the other name for that diastolic rumble when we talk about aortic regurgitation? Oh, yeah, that's right. That's called the Austin Flint murmur. So already I'm ruling that out if they're asking me what type of heart disease are we talking about. Um, mitral stenosis is more what? Diastolic. And Anytime we talk about mitral stenosis, what is going to be that heart sound mentioned in every board exam? Yeah, kind of like that that opening snap. So I already took this off. Now, mitral regurgitation definitely has a systolic murmur. And how would you describe that? It would be holosystolic, pansystolic. It's not going to be crescendo, decrescendo, kind of like that peaking and dropping. So if I was thinking about the big four left-sided heart murmurs and valvular heart diseases, I mean, the one that jumps out at me is aortic stenosis. Now, what goes against aortic stenosis here is that 
whoa, this person's 18 years of age. That's going to be kind of odd. Most common cause of aortic stenosis is always going to be one. Yeah, you just, you're going to get old and, you know, you're going to get some calcifications on the heart valve. Even if you're younger and some of you are, I already hear it. I hear it through the, um, you know, the computer. You're saying a bicuspid aortic valve. I mean, sure, but you're still going to be on the older side. So this may not even be aortic stenosis to begin with. Hey, let, let's keep on reading, okay? Um, this murmur, you know, I mean, is heard best along the left sternal border and it decreases with squatting and, huh, it's bolded red. So on your board exams, when we talk about valvular heart disease, they love to manipulate the murmur to help you figure out what is the diagnosis. Now, when we talk about squatting, literally squatting, what is going to happen to venous return to the right side of the heart? It's going to what? Increase. So when we talk about the classic murmurs, whether it be aortic stenosis or regurgitation, microstenosis or microregurgitation, if you increase venous return to the heart, I mean, those, you know, murmurs should get what? Louder. But this is weird. It says it actually decreases. So I'm not even thinking about the classic four heart diseases anymore. When we talk about those classic four valvular heart lesions, I mean, it's got to be something else. So it's more pronounced in the upright position. So when it means more pronounced, that means that when you're standing up, there's decreased venous return to the heart and the murmur gets what? Louder. So, and the lungs are clear to auscultation. So the ECG shows left ventricular hypertrophy with abnormal repolarization. They do an echo and it shows an asymmetric septohypertrophy. Stop right there. So if you have a septum, which uh, separates the right and left side of the heart, that's really thickened. No, in an 18-year-old who um, has these cardiac findings, there's one heart disease that really jumps to mind, and that's what? Yes. This is what we call hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with, yeah, obstruction. So let's keep on reading here. So the septal is thickened at 1.8 centimeters. There is anterior systolic motion of the mitral valve. So that's what we call... SAM. What does SAM stand for? I guess we just said it, systolic anterior motion. And what happens is when we talk about the mitral valve, it has two valves. It's going to be the anterior and posterior leaflets. And what happens is, is that the anterior leaflet is going to actually get drawn in to this left ventricular outflow tract causing obstruction. So they're telling you they see that when they did the echo. So this is going to be an obstructive cardiomyopathy with this physiology we call SAM, systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve. The peak instantaneous left ventricular outflow tract gradient is grossly elevated. So it says 30 millimeters of mercury, and normally it's going to be around 10 to 12. So the question now becomes, which of the following uh, is the most appropriate management regarding this patient's participation in basketball? So this is a young man. He wants to, you know, he wants, he's going to college and he has big expectations. And now you have these findings. What do you tell him to do? Um, is a choice A, you know what, bud? I'm sorry. You're not going to play basketball the rest of your life. Oh, I like B. I mean, put him on a beta blocker. You know what I mean? I know when we talk about um, hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, beta blockers help out and yeah, put him on a little medication. All right. Um, should we refer him for an alcohol septal ablation? ablation. So are we going to do procedures that shrink 
that septum to make it smaller so there won't be any obstruction. And then you could go play basketball. All right. Um, well, maybe put a defibrillator so people have this, you know, obstructive, hypertrophic, you know, uh, cardiomyopathy with that big septum. They're really predisposed to what? Arrhythmias, heart attacks. And, you know, maybe you put in an ICD just in case he gets one of these. Uh, he won't die, then, then to go play. Or E, begin disoparamide, which is an antiarrhythmic that's, you know, in that whole medical management after beta blockers and non-dihydropyridine capsule channel blockers. I don't know about E, but what, what, what do you think? This is, a, this is a tough one. I'm sure this is, not, this is going to be a common question that's going to happen on board exams. And, you know, people who do sports medicine, I mean, this is what we worry about finding the most in our athletes is this hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. So the answer here is, I know it's going to sting for everyone. It's, it's A, this, these findings, like we talked about already, it's consistent with this hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with obstruction. That's always going to be the most important thing. And like it says in our second bullet point here, it's the single most common cause of sudden death in young athletes. It's so scary. And one of the reasons why it may happen is because of the fact that, you know, you got to supply blood to a very thickened heart muscle. And, you know, when you're exercising, you may not meet the demand. And what will happen is that you have areas of irritability, ischemia, and those are going to be focuses of getting arrhythmias. So when you get these arrhythmias, of course, when you worry about are things like atrial fibrillation or ventricular arrhythmias, and that can lead to sudden cardiac death. So, you know, the recommendations from the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association is athletes who have. Uh, obstructive cardiomyopathy, you know, they may participate in competitive sports that are considered low intensity. So I had to look that up because I'm like, what, what, what are low intensity sports? So they said curling. And so, I mean, I don't know if many people are familiar with curling. So I put a, I put a picture up here and this guy's really getting into it, but uh, they have these brooms that are kind of, you know, um, shaving the path. It's usually a winter sport. So my poor basketball guy could do curling or he could do bowling. So, I mean, this is a, you know, we joke about it, but this is a disease you don't want. And we'll talk more about it in one second. So let's talk about some of these other answer choices. So in patients with symptoms from what we call the Hocum hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, I mean, of course, you want to do medical therapy and lifestyle modifications as the basis. That's always the best first initial thing to do. When we talk about you know, medical therapy, I mean, de definitely beta blockers are going to be first, you know, and when we talk about uh, beta blockers, of course, we want to do those for people who have this and are symptomatic. But look at the third bullet point. However, you can't just use beta blockers and medical therapy for the sole purpose of saying, let me put you on these meds, then go and play, go play your basketball, football, soccer, and all these sports. So what's going to be another option over here? Are, it was going to be that catheter-based alcohol septal ablation, or they could do an open surgical uh, septal myomectomy, where this actually take out that, um, that very thickened septum. So look at this diagram over here. So this is going to be the left ventricle. This is going to be the septum dividing the left and right side of the, of the ventricles. And you can see how hypertrophied it is. And when we talk about the heart muscle, it needs oxygen, it needs blood flow. So when we talk about having so much extra muscle that you may not be able to deliver as much blood flow and oxygen to that area of the heart, 
So it's going to make you really predisposed to ischemia, infarction. And when that happens, you definitely be predisposed to arrhythmias. So how do people who have obstructive cardiomyopathy present? Well, you could think about congestive heart failure. You could think about chest pain. You could think about arrhythmias. And what is it showing here is they're putting a catheter into the vessels, these coronary vessels that feed the heart, and they actually will infarct the heart. Seems kind of weird. If you infarct the heart, then it will really make you predisposed to arrhythmias to begin with. But we do that to help we shrink the septum. Interventional cardiologist does this. It always has risks. And it's not really a simple decision of who gets a myomectomy versus who gets a catheter ablation. And that's why these cases are discussed in a forum with many different people from the cardiac field, cardiothoracic surgery, interventional cardiology, the cardiologist, to see what's going to be the best for this patient. But needless to say, anytime we talk about an invasive procedure, whether it's going to be catheter ablation or, my, or you know, doing a septomyomectomy, well, you definitely want to do medical management first. So, but once again, look at this, the bullet point down here. Don't offer these procedures for the sole purpose of just saying, hey, if you do this procedure, then I'm going to go and let you play. Now, here are going to be some of the guidelines I wanted to mention. You know, patients with, you know, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with obstruction should be considered for an intracardiac defibrillator. So that means when the heart stops, when you get an arrhythmia, it shocks you back. I mean, if you have any following of these risk factors, I mean, there are some measurements of how thickened the, the myocardium is going to be. Uh, if you had a previous cardiac arrest due to arrhythmias, if you become hypotensive during exercise, if you had an unexplained syncope episode, if there's a family history, non-sustained VTAC on ambulatory monitoring. So I wanted to let you know that an SCD definitely has other indications to place it. It's very important when we talk about it. But once again, in regards to this question, you can't just say, let me put an intracardiac defibrillator and then let them play right after that. So if you're wondering why I put these pictures here, you know, a lot of my, 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 uh, my students right now, they're so young and you might forget a couple of the stories. This gentleman up here is Hank Gathers. And I remember this because I was a huge basketball fan growing up. And I believe he went to the College of Loyola Marymount and he was supposed to be on the Los Angeles Clippers. And before he actually got a chance to play for the Clippers, he actually had a sudden cardiac death and passed away in college. And it's something that I always remember. Uh, this gentleman down here is Reggie Lewis. He made it to the NBA. He played with greats like Charles Barkley and Michael Jordan. And he died during an NBA basketball game because he had hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. You know, when we talked about this vignette, I mentioned about something called SAM. When we talk about the obstruction due to this systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve, well, what is it and what causes it? So when I look at this over here, this is going to be a what we call a parasternal long axis view of the heart. So this is the left atrium. This is the left ventricle. Here's the mitral valve with the two leaflets. The anterior leaflet is closest to the aorta. So think A to A, anterior and aorta. This is the posterior leaflet. Here is the septum, and here is the right ventricle. So when we talk about this classic thickened septum, that would be right here where the septum comes really, really thick. And what does it block? This thing called the left ventricular outflow tract. So blood can't leave the ventricle and go to where? The aorta. So here's the aortic valve over here. So when we talk about the septum being so thick that it blocks this 
left ventricular outflow tract, it almost mimics what? Aortic stenosis. And that's why, what type of murmur do you get? Systolic, crescendo, decrescendo. But when we talk about how we manipulate the murmur, it's a little backwards because if you increase venous return to the heart, what's going to happen, there's going to be more blood in the left ventricle. So it's going to push the septum away. And when it pushes it away, there's not going to be that murmur. But if you're very dehydrated, where you actually decrease venous return to the heart, well, this septum is really going to flop over here and block, you know, the left ventricular outflow tract, making the murmur louder. And that was part of the vignette. So what happens when we talk about SAM? What makes the obstruction even worse is two concepts. So one is going to be the Venturi effect. The other is going to be the Bernoulli principle. So what is the Venturi effect? It's kind of right here going back to integrating step one in the basic science. So what it means is that when you have a narrowed area, so that means when it's narrowed, like you have a garden hose, you take your thumb and put it over the garden hose. What happens to the water? It shoots out. So imagine putting my thumb here. What happens to blood flow? It shoots out. Velocity is very what? Fast. So the faster the velocity, the less pressure. So what does it mean? Notice here that when you have a very thickened diameter or a big diameter, big radius, you're going to have a higher pressure pushing outwards. But as the radius or diameter narrow, like I'm putting the thumb over the garden hose, sure, velocity is increasing, but pressure is decreasing. So right here, there's going to be less pressure pushing outwards. So you can't push away that really thickened septum. So that's what's called the Venturi effect. The Bernoulli principle, well, how do I describe it? Is that when you have this narrowed area right here, that when things go whipping by, it creates a vacuum effect. And one of the classic things to describe this, have any of you folks ever gone to well, like In-N-Out hamburger or a kind of like a diner where they have that thick chocolate shake and you have a straw and you want to sip the chocolate shake? What happens when you're sipping it? It creates this vacuum. And what happens to the straw? It shuts. That's going to be kind of like the Bernoulli principle because of that sucking in effect because you had that high velocity. Also, I mean, another example is going to be, have you ever been in your, in your bedroom and then, you know, you leave the door open a little bit and, the, and like all of a sudden the air conditioner kicks in and what happens? The door just slams shut. Why? Because you have that narrow crack, you have high velocity, it creates that vacuuming effect over there. So that's called the Bernoulli principle. So both these put together is why you get that closing of the left ventricular outflow tract making the obstruction even worse. So with that being said, let's talk about this 34-year-old man is evaluated for a one week of progressive dyspnea on exertion and palpitations. Medical history is notable for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and mild mitral regurgitation. His only uh, medication is a beta blocker. On exam, uh, his heart rate is 120. It's irregularly irregular. Very few things are irregularly irregular. So what jumps to mind? atrial fibrillation. The O2 sat is 98% on room air. There is JVD in a three out of six systolic crescendo, decrescendo murmur heard best over the left sternal border. And the remainder of the exam is within normal limits. So ECG shows atrial fibrillation with a rapid ventricular response. A TEE shows asymmetrical septal hypertrophy and a dynamic left ventricular outflow obstruction 
with a gradient that's grossly elevated at 40. Normal should be around what? Like 10 or so. Uh, there's no evidence of a left atrial appendage thrombus. So in the left atrium, it has like a little ear. That's when the appendage is. And usually that's a very common place where we see clot when we talk about uh, people have atrial fibrillation, but there was no thrombus there. They calculate something called the CHADS-2 VASC score. And this is going to be a score to determine what is the risk when you have atrial fibrillation of getting a stroke and what, who needs to be placed on anticoagulation uh, based upon how high the score is. And you know what? They calculated the CHADS-2 VASC score and it's zero. It says you really don't need to be on any anticoagulation. And they did a TEE and there was no clot and there was they even looked at the left atrial appendage. And what did it do now? So in addition to acute anticoagulation with heparin because of the AFib, which of the following is the most appropriate for thromboembolic risk reduction in this patient? Should we put them on an antiplatelet like clopidogrel? Should we start them on uh, Coumadin, which is dose-adjusted warfarin? Maybe we should put the patient on a high-dose aspirin. Or you know what? The CHADS-2 VAS score is zero, we, no further therapy. Or should we use another antiplatelet that we really mainly use in people who have acute coronary syndrome who are getting stented, which is Tigerlor that goes by the brand name Berlanta? This is going to be one of those really important questions because the trick here is that CHADS-2 VAS score. I mean, sure, it's zero. Sure, in a perfect world, maybe you'd consider not doing anticoagulation, but not when it's someone who has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And of course, in this case, he also has obstruction. You know, the risk of getting atrial fibrillation is so high and having complications and having strokes that you need to anticoagulate these patients. And the only choice for anticoagulation here, since I didn't put any DOAX, which are these new direct oral anticoagulants, is classic medication, which is Coumadin and Warfarin. So the answer has to be B. So let's put some bullet points up here. And people who have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, especially with obstruction, AFib occurs in almost 25% of cases. And why are they so short of breath when they get it? Can you imagine that back here? Look at this. If your atria is contracting, not even contracting, it's fibrillating, it's doing this. No blood flow is going where? Into the left ventricle. If you have no blood flow in the left ventricle, this septum is going to what? Close the left ventricular outflow track. You're going to worsen the obstruction. Therefore, less blood flow is going out through the aorta. You're going to be what? Short of breath. You're going to develop what? Chest pain. So this is very important why we want to control the atrial fibrillation and anticoagulate these patients. Also, when you have AFib, there's also a higher incidence of stroke, especially in the setting of these patients. So whether the AFib is regarded as paroxysmal, persistent, permanent, some of the classic ways we describe atrial fibrillation, all of them will put people at a high risk for stroke who have obstructive cardiomyopathy. So we definitely need to anticoagulate these individuals. And this is the classic rhythm strip of someone who has an irregularly irregular rhythm with no discernible P waves. This is AFib. When we talk about the CHADS-2 VAS score, I wanted to put what it is, we all could use a little uh, memory jog right here. So here's a mnemonic, you know, C for congestive heart failure, H for hypertension, A for age, you get two points. That's why there's a two next to here. So age greater than 75, D for diabetes, S for stroke, previous stroke or TIAs, 
V for vascular disease, like peripheral arterial disease, you know, and then there's always going to be um, an age where you're going to be from the 65 to 74. You only get a plus one. If you're greater than 75, you get a plus two. And then, of course, um, when we talk about uh, gender, you know, it makes a role. And if you're female, you definitely get a plus one. And the reason why they put this in the vignette is that this top point that this CHAS2 VAS score has not, and I put this in bolded red, been studied in patients who have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And therefore, you cannot use the scoring system in the setting of AFib and patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy to make a decision of whether you're going to anticoagulate or not. When we talk about which anticoagulants would you consider using, both warfarin, which was the answer in this case, and something called the DOAX, these direct oral anticoagulants, classic ones are Dabigatran, which is going to be Pradaxa. This is going to be um, Apixaban, which is Eliquest, and Rivavoxaban, which is Xeralto. You know, they really, you know, studies have shown that they are safe and effective in reducing thromboembolic risk, even though there hasn't been randomized controlled trials comparing Coumadin to the DOAX. So let's do our last question in regards to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And this is going to be a 50-year-old man who was diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy following an episode of syncope. An ICD was placed and a beta blocker was initiated. Genetic testing revealed a mutation of the beta myosin heavy chain gene associated with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Medical history is otherwise unremarkable, and the patient has a daughter who is asymptomatic. Which of the following is the most appropriate management of this patient's daughter? So should you do an ECG in a transthoracic echo, start screening at age 21? Should you do an ECG in a transthoracic echo, screening at age 40? You know what? You don't need ECG or echo because if the patient is symptomatic, if they're not symptomatic, then you don't need to do anything. Should you do gen genetic counseling and testing as we speak, just based on what you heard? Or forget about it, there's really nothing to do. This is going to be very important because people are going to ask you, hey, when we want to treat patients, that's definitely very important. But having to know what to do with their loved ones, their sons, their daughters, relatives. So this is going to be a very important question. And the answer here is going to be D. There's no questions asked. We need to talk to uh, uh, the family members. So important things for the board exams is that Hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy is an autosomal dominant disease. So I put it over here. What does it mean to be autosomal dominant? Here's the male, which is XY. Here's the female, which is going to be XX. And once you get the gene, you're going to be affected. So once you get the gene, just one copy, that's why it's autosomal dominant. You're going to be having that mutation. Patients with hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy and a known mutation uh, genetic counseling and testing is recommended for all first-degree family members, regardless if they have symptoms or not. That's so important. So mutation-negative family members do not require evaluation and have no risk of a future development of this disease. So that's a good peace of mind. So once you test them, they're negative, then there's no future risk of developing it. Family members who do test positive should be further evaluated with physical exam, ECG, echo, MRI in some cases. And some patients will be identified as carriers of only the genetic mutation without LVH. And they won't be called these individuals 
genotype positive, but phenotype negative. And we still need to monitor these patients. So this is going to be, these three questions are so important, have been on USMLE board exams. They're very common questions you see, especially when you're doing your cardiac rotations on the ward. So I actually wanted to show you an echo of what it looks like of someone who has hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. So once again, this is going to be just to orient you. This is the left atrium. Here is the mitral valve. This is the anterior leaflet. This is going to be the posterior leaflet. This is a parasternal long axis view. Look at the muscle of the left ventricle. It is so what? Thickened. This is the left ventricular outflow track right here. And notice how that the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve is totally obstructing this. This is that SAM, systolic anterior motion. Why does this occur? Venturi effect, Bernoulli principle. And look at this septum. It is huge right here. So this is what we see in some cases of people who have hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. And the last thing I wanted to talk about is this. And I made this for you. This is how we work them up. So when do I, how do I come to the diagnosis? Well, the first thing you got to think about is does an individual have LVH? left ventricular hypertrophy. Once you see LVH, what are, what are you going to do? Of course, you're going to get a good history. You're going to do a physical exam. You're going to get a transthoracic echo. You want to measure that wall thickness. And some you know, doctors are going to get what? An MRI, a cardiac MRI. And based upon all this, you're going to put them in one of two categories. Is the LVH acquired? So how can you acquire left ventricular hypertrophy? Always think about the big three. Do you have hypertension? Who here has hypertension? Um, almost everyone. So if you have hypertension, the left ventricle has to work so hard to overcome that afterload that the ventricular walls become what? Hypertrophied. Who else gets this? Athletes. My, my main man, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan. You know, they will have, because they're working so hard, they could have left ventricular hypertrophy. Or people have the valvular heart disease known as what? Aortic stenosis. So when you have aortic stenosis, that you have to work really hard to actually get that blood volume through the aortic valve. So because you're working hard, what's going to happen to the, the muscles of the left ventricle? It hypertrophies. So these are going to be acquired causes of LVH. So that's the first thing you want to do is rule this out. So if you rule all these things out based on what? History, physical, imaging, well, then it could be genetic. So when it becomes genetic, what are you going to do? Order the genes. So what is going to be my thought process at this time? You're either going to be gene positive, where we're talking about many, many genes. And these are genes that show mutation in one of several of these sarcomere genes, or it's going to be gene negative. So when it's going to be gene negative, that, hey, you still need to evaluate other causes of the abnormalities that were noted. These include things like restrictive cardiomyopathy. And I know even though when we're in med school, we think of restrictive cardiomyopathy as a whole different type of cardiomyopathy, and you're correct, but maybe there could be this overlap. So you still want to rule out things like what? Amyloid, hemochromatosis, sarcoidosis. So you look for other causes, including causes of a restrictive cardiomyopathy. But if they're gene positive, well, now you know that they have 
hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And that's the word that we're using is this hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It implies that it's what? Gene positive. So once you know you're here, what's the next thing to do is to evaluate if the patient's going to be symptomatic or asymptomatic. If there's asymptomatic, well, look what I wrote. For most people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, with or without left ventricular outflow tract obstruction who remain asymptomatic, we do not, big not, routinely use prophylactic drug therapy. You know why? Because there's no evidence that starting these drugs alters the natural course of the disease in patients who are asymptomatic. So that's why it's so important to get that good history. But trust me, most people are going to be what? Symptomatic. So if you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and you're symptomatic, then you have to figure out, is it because there's obstruction or no obstruction? And what causes you to be symptomatic? What are those symptoms? Well, you could have signs of heart failure. You could have signs of chest pain because I showed you that thickened ventricular wall. And because it's so thickened, you might not be able to deliver oxygen to the heart muscle that causes chest pain and arrhythmias. And of course, we already talked about what arrhythmia that we, well, we were about any arrhythmia, but of course, they're really predisposed for AFib. And so once we know that they're going to be symptomatic, are they going to be obstructed or not? So if they're going to uh, have no obstruction, well, you know what? We're just going to treat this as what? Heart failure, because there's no obstruction. And the key thing about this is that there's no role here for these non dihydroperidine calcium channel blockers. There's no role for disulpyramide. If you're treating it as CHF or mortality, of course, beta blockers is great, but we treat it just as uh, CHF. And of course, you do want to evaluate if they need an ICD or not. Now, if they're obstructed, which is the classic thing we see on board exams, it's most likely to the most common cause of obstruction, which is left ventricular outflow tract obstruction secondary to systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve, which we talked about. Now, does this obstruction occur at on exertion or does it occur at rest? And most of the time when we see these patients, it happens secondary to being on exertion. That's why it's always classically the basketball player, the football player, uh, the gymnastics person. So how do we treat that? Well, it's always going to be pharmacotherapy first. We always start off with beta blockers first. If we can't control the symptoms or they're intolerant of beta blockers, we could try these non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, such as diltiazem or verapamil. If they can't tolerate this, then you can move on to the antiarrhythmic known as disopyramide. And now if they already maximize medical therapy and they're still symptomatic, what would we think of next? Invasive procedures. We start off with things like a septal mimectomy or alcohol ablation. And this gets discussed to see what would be best for the patient. We talked about the alcohol-inducing infarction of the areas that are going to be hypertrophied. Or when we do a septal myectomy, well, that's going to be a cardiothoracic surgery. And of course, we also want to evaluate these patients for what? ICD. So why did I make this blue all the way down? This is the classic way that they ask questions on the board exams. Start off with LVH. If they're gene positive, they have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. They're most likely to be symptomatic. They're most likely going to have obstruction, usually secondary to LVOT, secondary to SAM. It occurs on exertion. 
And this is the way we work them up. So I spend a lot of time with this, but you know that cardiology is high yield for the board exams, especially this, because this is one of the number one causes of sudden cardiac death in athletes. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.